So hello and welcome to the 2015 year end review. We do hope you're not sick of looking back on the year just yet because we've got loads to still get off our chest. So as you probably know, we run the polls at the end of each year. This is where we ask our readers to pick the top DJs and live acts. Then we have the RA staff and contributors vote on things like albums, singles and labels. So the features roll out in quite a uh, tight format. So this discussion is our chance to go a bit off piece and more like brazenly throw our opinions around. So today in Berlin, um, I have a fantastic crew with me. Uh, we've got Angus Finlayson and Holly Dicker, both staff writers here at RA. Hello, guys. Hi. Hi. And happy birthday, Holly. Uh, thank you. It's an honour to be here. Amazing. Uh, we've also got Jordan Rothline, who is our tech editor. Hey, Jordan. Hey. And Will Lynch, our associate editor. How's it going, Will? Good, thank you. So we're going to start by discussing some of our favourite DJs of the year. And uh, I was going to go to Jordan first. Uh, he's gone for DJ Nobu. And uh, Jordan, you want to fill us in on why he's been your pick for this year? Yeah, I think that it had to do actually with a specific set that I saw him play. I've seen Nobu. I mean, he's known for playing techno these days for the most part. And I think he's an incredible techno DJ. He's got a real flair when he plays. He kind of like jams the tracks in there. But I saw him play a set in Amsterdam at ADE this year that I thought was really, really different. And it showed off a side of Nobu that I think I had heard about, but it's not the Nobu that, that I've ever actually known. So he was playing this party. I'm forgetting the name of the venue now, but it was a party with Mark Ernestus. Mark Ernestus opened playing kind of like crazy future music stuff. And then Nobu gets on and is playing house and disco. And he's playing all vinyl as well. So the implication is that this is not just something he, you know, was like, oh, please come and play a house and disco set. He, they said that and he was like, oh yeah, I'm also a house and disco DJ. I mean, his background is in that. He started playing techno mostly because he really liked what techno was like on a sound system and, and he felt like he could do really cool things with it. But I think of the like 10,000 records or whatever that he has in Japan, this is probably a big part of his collection. And I think I liked him playing this stuff for the same reason I like him playing techno. He, he's very forceful when he DJs. He's got a lot of personality in the way that he mixes and the way that he looks in the booth. And it was just a, a killer set. Like it was it was kind of all over the place with, with how he was playing house and, and disco. But there was like an authoritative quality to it that made you feel like you were in really good hands. It's interesting that you compare his techno sets to this performance because in my mind I have him as someone who's... Uh, quite slow and patient and considered, kind of does a very like psychedelic, like slowly evolving thing. Where was the crossover? Well, he he's always doing like kind of big transitions, I guess. And he loves playing tracks that don't just have a standard beat. And so I feel like in his approach to playing music that that isn't quite so kind of militantly 4-4 or something, it was almost like, yeah, like that part of his personality when he plays was like amplified a little bit. But yeah, he he played, yeah, only house and and disco in like kind of crazy combinations for for hours and hours and it was it was insane. It was probably one of the best DJ sets I saw all year. Anyone else see Nobu this year? I didn't actually see him, but he does seem to have been a very strong presence in in Europe this year. I mean, Jordan, do you think this has been a breakthrough year for him in Europe? Maybe in Europe, I think more people know about him now. I think there are a lot more mixes online. The word has sort of gotten out. 
I mean, obviously he's been huge in Japan for a long time. And I think that he has kind of been this link between what's going on in Japan and the rest of the world for, for a while. But I think he's, he's sort of no longer just like the Japanese techno guy. He's, yeah, he, he doesn't feel like such a, such a regional DJ anymore, if that makes sense. Holly, you've also selected a techno act as your pick, but um, maybe something on the uh, opposite end of the scale. Uh, yeah, maybe the complete opposite end of the scale. Yeah, A and D. I've basically they're the guys that I've seen the most play this year. I think I've seen them about five times. All completely different venues. Like one was a backroom party at Sona. The other one was to three and a half thousand people at ADE. And I don't know, every time it's kind of the exact same result. They kind of go in at a formidable pace and just keep on all the way through, no matter like if it's an hour set, three hour set, it just seems to be this relentless, intense barrage and I, I can't really get enough of it. <laughs> so they're the kind of DJs who, no matter the setting, they're going in hard, they're yeah, going in with the pace. absolutely. And, you know, they've kind of made it a thing. Like I remember they did their one of their first interviews for little white earbuds and um there was this uh, thing that they said uh, harder 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 and i kind of laughed at that, that that point but they've sort of actually turned that into a mantra and it's what they reel out every single time i just respect them for that so if we're going to place these guys on the intensity scale <laughs> what score are we giving them i'm gonna go for a 10 <laughs> it's my birthday why not <laughs> <laughs> They're probably the most intense um, techno act I've seen in terms of just a, that's not uh, at Bang Face at a Gabba party. <laughs> it's, just the, it's the bit just before. It's the just before, <laughs> just, before just before the, the descent. Yeah. yeah. Angus, tell us about your uh, choice for 2015. Yeah, my pick was uh, Peverlist, who is obviously not a particularly fresh face on the scene. I hope he doesn't mind me saying that, but, you know, I've been following him for almost a decade actually, and I've seen him DJ many times. But I saw him at Free Rotation this year, and I've kind of come around to the fact that most of my really sort of mind-blowing DJ or live music experiences these days happen at festivals, I think because, you know, you're out of your daily routine a little bit, and you're just a bit more open to really having your kind of taste just radically reconfigured by something. And for me, this year, Peverdis was that. Um, I mean, he played kind of what one might expect him to play. You know, it was a set full of uh, exclusives and things that were about to come out from that kind of Bristol, Liberty Sound axis of this kind of techno music, but with this particular uh, sound system slant to it. But yeah, it just, it just, for me, was really a reminder of how extraordinary that sound is and how kind of singular that world is. I think, you know, this music's very conducive to combining with other things and you often hear a couple of these tracks in a techno set or you know being presented in this broader context but to hear it all kind of on home turf as it were in its own world uh, really reminded me of its of how kind of extraordinary it can be yeah i guess it's an interesting time for this sound and this group of producers in general because um i don't know if this is a slightly cynical way of putting it but the novelty is kind of worn off at this point you know they had the breakthrough a few years ago like everything they're doing had an air of being brand new or something and now uh, you know the music is reaching maturity in a way yeah I mean I have to say I think I mean my enthusiasm for that world has waned slightly in the last couple of years because I think 
aesthetically it's it's settled into a fairly stable state you know the core kind of liberty people like Peverlist have a sound that they don't deviate from too much and a lot of the younger artists that they've released on the on the backwards label the sub label uh, all that kind of move in those circles they do some very interesting things but it's very much in the shadow of that liberty sound so I think partly that was why the set was so important for me is that it, it kind of really refreshed it for me and made me newly enthusiastic about it mm. I mean it might be at this point like um, you know after a period of experimentation they've almost like locked down their vocabulary in a way for sure I mean I think yeah I have on occasion been slightly frustrated because I think that there's still a lot of potential in there for something that's different again to come out of it whereas maybe a lot of the younger producers are yeah just a little too reverent of their elders in a way mm. but that being said people like Batu Factor, Alex Coulton, they've all made some really incredible tunes. So there's definitely like a lot of talent, a lot of interesting things going on there. Will, tell us about uh, your pick for, for this year. Yeah, so I picked Giggling kind of as a crew, but especially Constantine and Dustin. Sort of like what Inga said actually about them kind of having their own world. Interestingly enough, I find Giggling have a habit of um, doing this kind of takeover thing where at a venue or something, it'll be just them all night in numerous rooms. So there's a, you're, you're very much sort of engulfed in their, you know, special vibe. But I guess what I like about it is on the one hand, just like the label, when they're DJing, on the one hand, there is a distinct signature sound um, that's very much theirs. But on the other hand, it's extremely open-ended and it's surprising how many different things can sort of fall into it. So for example... When they played at um, Nachtigital, the first night, the final, I think it was six hours of the first night, which is really like um, Saturday morning, ending at noon or 6 a.m. to noon, it was Constantine, Atec, and Dustin. And um, you hit so many different parts of the musical spectrum in there, from starting with Laurie Anderson, O Superman, later on, um, Octave One Blackwater, Rhythm as a Dancer, Theo Parrish, Serengeti Echoes, things like that, all kind of with, um, you know, these reams of Traum Prince, Prince of Denmark tracks sort of connecting the dots. Anyway, it's just amazing how their sort of musical world is on the one hand very vast and also very, very distinctive. And it's, it's just kind of like a nice place to, you know, spend a night or whatever. And then I just saw them at Coney Island a couple of weeks ago, and it was a particularly kind of curveball-filled night almost as if it's like, you know, um, finding the limits of what their little sound is. But yeah, there's these funny moments like Dustin playing um, Doing It Right by Daft Punk. And, um, the, you know, you sort of think like, oh, yeah, I guess this does kind of fit their vibe. Like as, you know, on paper, it absolutely doesn't. But then hearing him play that track, it's like there's actually something kind of wistful and melancholy about that song that's very much kind of within their aesthetic, I guess. Do you think it's a classic case of contrast in a way you know if their uh, their music in its core is is very very understated if they play something like rhythm as a dancer you know compared to compared to what they're doing at their you know at their heart right yeah i mean i guess that's that's sort of the interesting part of um having a sound that creates a certain expectation in people is that then you can defy those expectations in in an interesting way but in a way that doesn't feel like a total deviation it's it's not out of nowhere like it, it makes sense in, in a way that's you know, 
more intuitive than it is rational, I guess. I mean, the the way that I think about these guys is that it's not so much that they have a sound. It's like they have an emotional space that they work in. You know, it's it's a word we overuse, but they have a vibe. And uh, you can throw a lot of different types of records in there, but there's something true about all of them. Yeah, I think on a simple level, too, it's just worth noting that, like, it's like Geekling is a really good label. But personally, I think the DJing side of it surpasses the the records like they they are really gifted djs it's like for me you know certainly some of the best dance for moments i've ever had do you think they could go as far as to break into ra's top 100 djs <laughs> do you think that's something they could achieve yeah who knows um only time will tell they gotta get really good shirts <laughs> as our winner this year consistently proves so i've gone for uh four tap for my pick he's gradually becoming one of my favorite DJs or certainly has been over the last few years. I feel like this year kind of a, a few things came together. It was like a combination of a few things in my mind. But um, I think the reason I've been gravitating towards him is his kind of it's extremely open-ended and flexible approach to DJing. I mean, you would have seen him this year playing really convincing sets on a rotary mixer, playing, you know, funk, soul, disco, jazz, African stuff kind of smash club sets, like played a very notable set for us last year at Trout, like, you know, really bring it to the main room. Then you could see him on Boiler Room playing to a bunch of pissed up 20-year-olds and dropping like Jao Donato 7-inch in the middle of it all. But I think the main time this year I caught him or the kind of most notable one was the Skrillex back-to-back. Definitely talked about that last time, so I'm not going to get into it, but um, I think that's kind of the classic example of the of the risk-taking, really, that he would put himself out there in that way. I think back in the day, seeing him in Plastic People was probably like the the one, but um, the one that stands out for me the most from the last couple of years was when uh, he played this Boiler Room gig at South By, and uh, it was really a hip-hop crowd that night. They had uh, Bashmore and uh, Omar S, I think, playing back-to-back, and it kind of, kind of went down quite badly. But... Um, They'd had DJ Mustard on earlier, who was just absolutely smashing hip-hop anthems, and the crowd were, like, really baying for blood. And then, unfortunately, there was a uh, technical issue for Future's live set, and um, he ended up walking off stage, and there was, like, a really charged atmosphere. Anyway, Fortet had the uh, unenviable task of closing out the room, and um, the crowd got so impatient, they were kind of, like, chanting, and um, I think a a Fortet chant went up. But... um, yeah, despite all these obstacles, he managed to bring people around to a kind of swung, garagey, kind of like grimy vision. And um, I mean, I think to pull off something like that in that context for that crowd just kind of shows his his flexibility. It was actually something I picked up on uh, an exchange I did with Dan Snaith Caribou last year where he said this thing that what attracted him to techno and house culture was this idea that you have a template and what goes over the top of that is pretty much open to you and up to you. I feel like Fortet is someone who really embodies that spirit. You know, when I see his name on a on a flyer, it really just evokes this kind of idea of freshness and unpredictability in my mind. <laughs> Let's go. 
Okay, let's uh, move on and discuss uh, some of our favourite live acts of 2015. Uh, Jordan, Voices from the Lake, talk to us. I probably saw them play live more than I saw anybody else play live this year. And I, I sort of like, I don't really know where to begin. I also kind of feel like it, I don't know, it could seem like a little bit of an obvious choice. I mean, you know, there's been lots of praise for these guys. They're just really, really talented techno musicians. But, you know, I usually tend to get most excited about DJ sets because there's this level of unpredictability in them. And a lot of times, I mean, there, there are lots of great live sets out there, but, you know, you, you go into it, it's going to be a bit more rehearsed than a DJ set will be. There's maybe, they can't take it in quite as many directions as a DJ theoretically could. But with Voices from the Lake, it's even more flexible than a DJ set. And I've seen them play really, really epic sets this year that, you know, you would normally think, okay, like five hours, that's an extended DJ set. But I saw them play a live set that was five hours and it was crazier than a DJ set would have been that, that was of that length, more varied, more of a build. I think it's just like, obviously they really know their machines. They really, really know what, what they're doing when, when they're up there. I think that more than technical know-how, they, they just have a real sensitivity to each other and to the crowd. And they're willing to just push a little bit further, kind of on both ends. I mean, they can play very quiet, mysterious, pretty music. And then, you know, they can also play extremely hard techno that then gets even harder than you would ever think it should go. I just, I'm really impressed by these guys. I think they just kind of keep getting better and better. I'm ready for them to like release some new music at this point, you know, because they're great in the studio as well. But yeah, the, the live thing was just amazing. It's kind of baffling that they can wring kind of so much variety out of a setup across five hours. I, I, I don't I don't know how you would do that and kind of keep it interesting. Yeah. And, and you know, their explanation is that, you know, oh, it's just it's all improvised and we're just vibing off of each other and we kind of know what we're doing. And it's like, I know that that's true, but it's really hard to buy it in a way because there there's something very like, you know, I don't know, there's something so confident and composed about the way that they're playing techno, but I know that they're they're doing all of this off the cuff. I don't know, there's definitely like a little bit of a new age quality to the whole Voices from the Lake thing, and I'm kind of tempted to just say they're on some like mystical other level, but... I know. think you just did. Yeah. <laughs> My favorite blurb so far. <laughs> thank you, thank you. <laughs> Will, you've gone for uh, Orteca. We were both at that performance. I think you uh, said I was scratching my chin at one point. I don't know if that was true. <laughs> yeah, that's a, that's a tweet I wish I had sent. RA editor strokes his chin during an Autica performance. <laughs> but um, it was cool. It was at Block Festival, and they were kind of one of the one of the main headliners. Which it's sort of a sort of a built-in irony there that obviously Autica is you know, uh, massively influential and anyone attending block would, you know, understand that they're extremely important and, and the room was really packed out, but then it's like, you know, it's late at night in the main room at a festival and they start and it's just no lights with their monitors obscuring the two of them. So you're just looking at nothing and extremely understated sound kind of rolls in, you know, there's that minute there of everyone's sort of being like, uh, am I down with this? Should I go see Road Hat? Or, you know, I can't help but think that's kind of a good sign when, people, when not everyone's down with it or when people have struggled to make up their minds, like, am I going to watch the whole thing? 
but yeah, there was something kind of interesting about seeing, you know, you're at this festival, you're hearing tons of different sounds, you know, a, a, a real colorful variety of different kinds of electronic music. And then Autekar is, it feels like this is the primordial soup from which, you know, all, all these other styles kind of emerged. I, I would say it sounded the most like Confield, where it's just this kind of murky, throbbing, you know, soup of noise. And it's like there's, you know, there's no loops. You can't even really tell if the same sound happens twice. It's just this kind of weird, organic, wandering thing. I also found it quite nice just, uh, it's one of these things where you don't exactly dance. You kind of, you know, everyone's there just sort of wobbling around, which, you know, in the midst of, of a pretty full-on festival is actually, I've found it quite soothing. It's, you know, even just the no lights thing, when you're used to fucking rave lights all weekend and you and there's just no lights, it's sort of like nap time in like a nice way, you know? <laughs> so it's every, everyone's in there in the dark, just kind of like going into some kind of weird introspective zone. Yeah, I thought it was fantastic. Holly, you've gone for uh, Lacquer, an act yeah. I haven't seen up to this point. Well, I actually wanted to say something about Orteca because I saw them last year and it was the complete opposite of that. <laughs> there was, it was an absolute electronic tear out, all in the darkness. Um, I was with a friend and uh, I think she managed to take her pants off at one point, like she was just raving around in her boxer shorts. <laughs> but that's when you know. That's when you know you've got something down. But I think that just kind of says that, you know, you don't really ever get the same show with Orteca. And um, I can't believe that, yeah, you had this sort of like dreamy nap time with them when I had the complete... <laughs> complete opposite. I mean, for the record, <laughs> it's not music you would sleep to. That's no, not no, 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 no. I think it's more just the, uh, you know, the overall production and mm. yeah, being bombarded with sound, but not with lights at that point. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, would we say that Lacquer's kind of a post Orteca act? Is there an influence there? Um, I guess, um, I mean, it's hard to pick acts that haven't really been influenced by Orteca, but sure. um, for me, they've made sort of one of my favourite albums of this year and I basically got to see it performed live. I was listening to the album actually just on the train over here and on the record it sounds all really nicely blended together and seamless and then when you see it performed live you kind of get a bit more of the the two personalities at play there. It kind of separates itself out and um, you have like this choral wash on the top and then you've got this kind of drilling techno beats somewhere way off on the other other end and you can kind of when you watch it you kind of see Ian sort of controlling the the pummeling bit and then Dara's sort of standing very chilled and relaxed and kind of he does the visuals so it, it's nice to see these two different elements that are in the album but they're a bit more obvious when they're performing live. Well sorry where was the show? This was at Incubate which I, I don't know I saw too many amazing things but all live as well, actually. But uh, yeah, that was one of my, the best live acts I've seen. And um, Angus, both of our picks have come from Unsound. It's probably a recurrent event on this uh, on this talk. Tell us about your pick. Yeah, so my pick is Jalen, the footwork-related artist who released an amazing debut album uh, this year on Planet Mew. And yeah, similar experience to Holly, I guess, really, like... Um, the live show was really an opportunity to see the album performed. You know, it didn't radically 
change the material. It was her debut live show in Europe, but it just it just kind of presented her world in this really satisfying way. I mean, the the room that she played in in the Hotel Forum, this big um, structure that Unsound have their club events in, had possibly too many subwoofers. The bass was extremely loud, but it was kind of interesting to experience her music, which is very rhythmically distinctive, should we say, really rooted by the bass. I mean, you know, a home listening experience is never really going to give you that same bodily sense that, okay, like these enormous 808 kind of booms are really like holding it all down. There was kind of a section of what felt like new material, which I found really exciting. It kind of um, took the components of her music into an even more kind of extreme place. The sound palette was moving away from the kind of sounds you would typically associate with footwork in terms of the drum sounds and things, and towards this kind of like, yeah, this kind of, I called it in a review of her recent EP, like a a pan-global kind of percussive palette, you know, lots of like shakers and congas and stuff. I think Um, we've both um, described it in relation to Shackleton. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that was my... Um, that was the thought that immediately sprung to mind was that both in terms of that that specific choice of sounds, but also just the way that Jalen has this kind of really unique rhythmic grammar and is now at this point just completely in her own world. Very much reminded me of Shackleton. Yeah, so um, my pick was Amnesia Scanner, the Renact who um, I also caught in the first room uh, at Unsound. They actually performed the festival for the second year in a row. I'd caught them in the third room last year. It's kind of a slightly suboptimal space. I've seen some great stuff there, but it's like right near the exit and entry, so it can be quite hard to lose yourself. But nevertheless, their set last year had this kind of out there sort of disc located kind of like hip-hop feel to it and I definitely wanted to hear more from them so um this year they were given more of a, a central role I think they played the Thursday night and there was kind of a if you like a loose theme running through the night or there certainly was in my mind with this kind of club deconstruction idea um had people like Angel Ho, Paolo Lorenzo Senni, Lexian Endgame, Holly Herndon I guess you could arguably put in this category I didn't actually know it at the time, but their set was based on an audio play that they'd done called As Angel's Rig Hook. I've since listened back to it, and I have to say I found it uh, a little cheesy. There's kind of a nonsensical spoken word element going through it that doesn't sound all that like convincing on record. But on the night, I felt all the bits like really, really nicely came together. The room was kind of lit in these uh, like soft pinks and greens, and um, they were throwing a lot of stuff at the wall for sure you know there were elements of like trance and hip-hop and gabba there were like lots of aim and breaks kind of flying around but i think what they managed to achieve was getting the sweet spot which i think elsewhere on the night people didn't manage to attain so it's this idea where chaos is kind of ensuing but there's still enough there to keep it grounded you know it was still a very very danceable set you know it was rhythmically challenging but it wasn't going so far off the deep end that you know it just kind of uh, went into this gray mush of of sound if you like yeah i mean i have to say that that was kind of my takeaway from that particular night of unsound because there were a lot of um these kinds of artists performing many of them debut live sets or specially commissioned projects and in general yeah it felt like just slightly aimless often actually like uh a collection of impressive effects, impressive sounds. 
and a kind of evocative atmosphere, but um, nothing grounding it or, or like n no kind of real direction to it. Mm. And yeah, Amnesia Scanner was definitely an exception to that. is up next uh, Holly let's go to you first let's uh, break the order up uh, you've gone for Planet Moo which I, I assume is a, an all time favourite as well definitely was one of my original favourite labels and then I kind of stopped listening for a couple of years which I think a lot of people did as well but um, I don't know they just for me came screaming back this year there's been a lot of anniversaries theirs was 20th anniversary this year and they they did it in this sort of humble kind of fashion and they put together this absolutely amazing triple CD box set with a book written by Rory Gibb and all the music was um, either unreleased material or remixes of like new uh, roster and old rosters. So it was a perfect chance to really, if you <laughs> if you didn't know what this label was all about, you know, this is this is kind of sums it all up really nicely but then also that's just sort of half the tale this year they've had they've put out some really really amazing albums so they had uh from their old roster they had a, a really classic Luke Viber album Venetian Snares released on on them this year Drew Lussman put out his first album not as faulty DL and there was an another RP Boo album and then they also had two new signings. So one was Herva, the um, guy from Italy who is used to releasing on... Uh, it's Bosconi. Bos yeah, Bosconi yeah. and um, Delson. Mm. And Jaylin also released her debut album with them. So I think, I don't know, they really... They've been slugging along all these years. I think, was it... I can't remember who said it. It was on... Uh, I think it must be Rory Gibbs said that they've got this sort of perpetual underdog status, which I think's you know great. They've they've been doing kind of the exact same thing for twenty years, and like they're still around and they're still making incredible music. And I think this year they've really really nailed it. So, what would you say is the spirit of the label at this point? Is it to kind of nod to their heritage and move forward with acts who are sort of connected to it? What what, what do you think is their approach? <clears throat> it's pure and simple it's um what mike paradinus is listening to and his champion at the time and that's quite a rare a and r ethos i suppose just to have one 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 man sort of vision so i that and to be getting away with it for so long i think that's it's incredible so it's kind of interesting to see them like weave in and out of the zeitgeist maybe you could say but because you know often with labels of that kind of standing or that kind of age you know, they have an A&R an team and there's a lot of work goes into like making sure that things aren't missed or that they don't fall out of step. Because, you know, if you want to have something that's very successful from a business perspective, you know, you need to be covering all your bases. But um, what you see with Planet Mew is that like there are years when, I don't know, maybe Mike's like not really that enthused by what's going on and releases some interesting records, but they're kind of like on the fringes of things. Mm. And then there are years when it just really connects up and Planet Mew makes a really important contribution to whatever's going on. Um, so it does feel like this year with, with things like the Jay Lynn album, 
they kind of like released records that really needed to be released and made a big impact on other artists and on listeners. Will, you've gone for another old favourite, if you like. Yeah, Honest John's. Yeah, basically I just think, uh, I mean, obviously Honest John's is sort of a powerhouse. Just, it's, you know, obviously an institution in this culture in a number of ways. And, you know, the idea of them being a fantastic label is absolutely nothing new. But I feel like just something happened this year where if, if you look at just what they put out in 2015, they just really broke into a rhythm of just these absolutely killer releases coming one after another, beginning with... Um, I guess the first would have been Soda Fett's Drippin' for a Trip, the Trip-a-Dub mix. I always get that slightly wrong somehow. But yeah, and then um, the thing with Ricardo, um, Kasim Mossa and, and Simone White, there are, there are all these releases um, where these are artists that have sort of, their home is elsewhere, but somehow Honest John's sort of teases something really special out of them. Like, on, you know, on a simple level, if you take Kasim Mossa and uh, Simone White, it's just that, you know, it's hard to imagine that that would have happened otherwise. The idea of those two artists pairing up, Simone White being this kind of, I don't really know how to describe her, like, um, I guess pop in the loosest sense of the term, sort of singer-songwriter, who um, has had an album out on the label before, and then Casamosa remixing her, aside from the A-side, which, you know, has this sort of low-tempo chug. The other two are really kind of unusual for him, these sort of uh, really... Um, hazy, beatless, unhouse and techno related sort of sketches. Basically, there's just what, you know, it feels like you're seeing a, a really um, keen curatorial sense and action. And, I'm, you know, I'm not really sure what is actually going on there, but um, they have a way of sort of inviting really great artists onto the label and then one way or another getting incredible results from them. Um, and then, of course, there's also Laurel Halo, um, her Institute album and recently the Dresden EP. Again, it's all artists that sort of like, you know them from other labels, but Honest John's somehow just um, get amazing stuff out of them. Jordan, tell us about your your pick for this year. Yeah, I picked Dark Entries, but there were honestly a number of other labels that I could have picked for the same reason. So this one sort of stands in for that. I guess I've really been vibing this year on music that's been reissued or music that yeah isn't from this time but feels really great from this moment. Dark Entries is kind of a powerhouse with that. I mean, speaking of powerhouse labels, they released something like 27 or 28 records this year covering mostly music from the 80s. This was stuff that's a little less obscure, like Patrick Cowley, Severed Heads, and then stuff that's incredibly obscure, at least for me, music like from a Danish punk musician named Max Gould, bands like Shock Corridor that I don't know that I would have known otherwise. They always pair it with really great artwork, really nice pressings. You can get some of it digitally uh, on places like Hard Wax as well, but the whole catalog isn't available that way. But I think that this is a lot of music that you pr you might not really hear otherwise. Just because it's been re-released by this label doesn't mean that it's going to get that much wider of an audience. But I, I love that I, you know, I wasn't born when most of this music was released. It's been sort of toiling in obscurity, but now due to all sorts of factors about the way the world works now, we can discover this music and it can be, you know, music for now that is not at all from now. Is this something that ties the releases together, would you say? Yeah, it's all um, 
well, they have a couple of different styles that they're drawing from sort of new wave or dark wave or various wave genres. A lot of waves. A lot of waves. Also, um, disco, especially Italo stuff. Um, they have this sort of other series of releases that's, mo- I think, dark entries, editions, that's mostly represses of like extremely hard to find Italo records. I mean, I think that what ties it together is it's old you know, 70s, 80s, and um, obscure, maybe never really had wide release. And um, it's sort of getting maybe the release that it was that it always deserved in the first place. It's always got teeth. Yeah, definitely. Do we have any very brief theories on why this might have been the year of the, the reissue and, the, you know, the unearthing of uh, obscure 80s, mainly music? I think every year has been the year of the reissue for about the last maybe four or five years and each year trumps the prior year in terms of being the year of the reissue so I think it I mean yeah you know there's you you could go very long here talking about the internet and our generations like I don't know excessive reverence to past generations or the easy access that we have to all this extraordinary music that was maybe passed up the first time around or you know there's any number of factors but um I think it's just a a trend that is quite embedded in in the looser sense dance music culture now. Well, I mean, my feeling about it is if you didn't like what was going on in new music this year, and there were definitely times when I didn't love what was going on in new music this year, you could just dip into older stuff and kind of have your mind blown that way. There's also the fact that like music has kind of been in a... Uh creative cul-de-sac for decades at this point to the extent where and, and that sounds str- stronger than, <laughs> than I meant for it to be but that's more negative than I meant for it to be but you know it's true like in the 70s you know teenagers that listen to rock and roll wouldn't be very interested in a doo-wop reissue you know but we are interested in hearing music that came out 30 years ago in many respects it's not that different from what's coming out now of course in many respects it is but it appeals to you know music that appeals to young people young music nerds in the 80s Feels the exact same crowd right now. I think that says something about the way music has evolved in the you know this past generation. Uh, Angus, tell us about Vleck and the year they've had. Yeah, Vleck is a Belgian label. Um, it's based in Brussels, and there's no reason really why I would pick this label this year as opposed to any other year really since it started in I think it was 2010. It's one of these small labels that just kind of quietly does its thing. It, its sound is very somehow kind of humble. Like most of the records that Vleck releases have this very understated, kind of nocturnal, slightly muzzy kind of vibe to them. And they released, I don't know, two, three, four records a year. But yeah, I think these are the sort of labels that often miss out on end of year shine because they don't really build up like a a sort of charge of hype around them or whatever. But they just show no signs of losing their way or of kind of dipping in quality what they do continues to be just extremely great and extremely singular i mean the, the two records that i really liked from them this year there was a really gorgeous house record by this guy Lawrence ledoux who um i think is from more of a kind of an indie bedroom poppy kind of a background but has made now a couple of records for them that kind of tackle house from that direction um, and come out with something really distinctive and the other one is from imerick de tapol who is kind of a minimalist drone composer um, who also has done one other record for the label and this one which is I think just come out or just about to come out is just really extraordinary kind of like extremely subtle 
frosty uh, kind of synth record that I've been enjoying a lot. Would you overall describe the label as a kind of home listening experience? You did mention a house release there, but well, I mean, they. I mean, what's interesting is the way that they're the Vleck sound, and it is somehow very distinctive. Is applied to all these different areas of musical activity. I mean, they started in kind of uh, left field bedroom hip hop, I guess, and they released the Wonder Group record at some point. But they also have Sagat, who is their kind of techno guy, um, who's put out maybe a couple of tracks on the label that could probably be played in something approaching a peak time set if you were a fairly adventurous DJ. So, it, I mean, mostly, yes, it's home listening, but it's interesting to see how it can be, how this aesthetic can be transposed into different contexts. I did go for a peak time label. I've gone for 50 weapons. I've got to say, when the when the news broke or the inevitable news that they were wrapping up, I wasn't exactly crying. I think I, I just had more respect for the fact that they were following through on the concept. But I've been thinking back over their catalogue over the last couple of weeks. And uh, I think when you take a step backwards, they actually did some really, really interesting projects. I think particularly in the early days, they were breaking a lot of ground between like techno and bass music and doing it in quite a convincing and non-gimmicky way. And I think a lot of the tracks from the early days of the label have really stood the test of time. On a personal level, I play and have, have played and do play a lot of tracks. I think they coax some amazing music out of Marcel Detman. Probably some of my favourite, in fact, the best stuff out of Cosmin TRG, kind of early transitioning into techno. Bambooni's an artist, so I've really liked tracking the development of. And um, I think my favourite, I think this is actually the track that Ben Damage picked in his RA podcast, but Amstam's Baldwin, definitely one of my uh, favourite rank uh, club cuts of the last few years. But yeah, beyond that, you know, they've had a Shed LP, they've had Shackleton, they've had T++, Made Up Sound, Addison Groove, Laurent Garnier. I actually don't think 2015 was their strongest year. I think it was a strong year, but not their strongest. I think some of the Fajak stuff was maybe a tad derivative. It was kind of an artist they brought through this year, but I think the Ben Damage and uh, Bambunu EPs <laughs> were, were really strong. And uh, this undertaking of an 11 compilation EP series was uh, was definitely ambitious. And uh, yeah, I would say that not all of it worked, but it was kind of notable appearances from, again, Marcel Detman, Paula Temple, really liked the Monolate track. Uh, it was a really sick kind of sludgy remix that uh, Moda Selector did of Shed. It was kind of a weaker Shed track, but they did this 100 BPM kind of refix of it, which I was really, really feeling. And yeah, I just think it's important to kind of dip the cap to a label who were doing, I would say, forward-thinking things and, you know, gently challenging the conventions of club music, but packaging it away, you know, where it does appeal to a wide audience. You know, there are definitely esoteric elements to the label, but, um, you know, this is good, interesting, fresh stuff that moves a lot of people. I'm not always into everything Moda Selector do, but um, I definitely think there's no dull moments with them. I also like that um, I think 50 Weapons is kind of rambunctious in a way. There's something just kind of like rowdy and fun, you know, even when it's like serious music, but it's like... There's um, something about the context, there's something about yeah. the spirit. It's probably yeah. made of themselves. But. Yeah, very much so. Well, and so many of the people who are involved in the label are sort of veterans of the scene. They're doing something really cool, but it doesn't feel like the label's out to like prove something necessarily. Yeah, uh, I'm pretentious. No, I mean, like, it's, 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 you know, like the label suggests, it's just, I'm sorry, like the name of the label suggests, just like, here's a bunch of bangers, have fun, you know. 
going to talk about the uh, vast world of online mixes now. Jordan, you're at the top of my uh, little list here. Tell us about your selection. Yeah, so I picked uh, the Bunker Podcast 100, which was from Derek Plazlyko and Mike Servito. I think sort of like just to start, sort of shout out to the Bunker Podcast. Uh, it's been really, really strong, especially recently. Great mixes from Wata Igarashi. Nahal Ramchandani, Voices from the Lake live sets, you know, if you're into super deep techno or also this kind of more Detroit side of things, like the mix that I'm going to talk about, then it's definitely a really, really great podcast to check out. This Plazlyko and Servito mix was a live recording from a bunker party in New York, and uh, it's extremely long. I think it's been broken up into three parts on SoundCloud. I guess uh, it's kind of... Um, you know, there's this, I think we've spoken a lot about these guys, this sort of generation of Detroit DJs, the kind of no way back crew. Not all of them live in Detroit anymore. Derek lives here in Berlin. Mike lives in New York. But they're definitely deeply influenced by the experience of growing up there. And um, the kind of, you know, I, what was it that Brendan Gillen said in the... The lost start of the Midwest rave DJ. Yeah, yeah. But, but then in the feature, he says, you know some throwaway like yeah you know those like basic channel changed my life kind of people you know <laughs> and um i think that these are seriously good djs serious music fans but i think that when you listen to a mix like this you can just hear how much fun they have doing it and how much they love this it's like extremely infectious this is also because it's so long a mix that you could kind of like pop in listen to a little bit and then a couple days later like grab another portion of it kind of felt like when you're at a party and, you know, you, you dip into the room and then you go to another room or something. But it was just, uh, I don't know, I, when you're listening to a live mix, I think that the great sign of a live mix is that you're like seriously jealous that you weren't there while it was happening. And that was like definitely something with, with this one. I was like just really sad that I wasn't there to actually hear these guys playing all of this like acid and techno and party tracks. It was killer. Will, you must have something to add at this stage. Um, no. <laughs> <laughs> I think the last thing that I would say maybe, um, you know, this was sort of the year when these guys, you know, they were sort of for a long time the best DJs you've never heard. And now a lot of people have heard them. <laughs> it's not such a mystery anymore, but I think it's, they're only getting better the more that they play and it's not one of those things where they seem to be burning out in any way or flaming out like there's such a depth to what they do and you can listen to eight hours of it and still be impressed actually one thing i would add is another uh really cool mix from that crew is derek Puzlyko's boiler room from this year it's also eight hours long or i think it's actually 12 hours long. This is the one from his apartment, right? Yeah, it's in his apartment with all the little, with all the babies. <laughs> anyway, um, yeah, it's just kind of, I don't know, I was watching it the other morning and it's like, you know, sort of part of the deal with like the, that crew, the No Way Back crew um, is they're just all these guys with um, decades long record collections, you know, they're, they're just, there's so much they're drawing from. Yeah, when you're watching this boiler room, it's just like Jordan said, like, you, know, you kind of skip around, jump to a random point, chill with it for a while. Yeah, something about Derek um, picking records from the shelves in his own apartment, often while he has his infant son, like, in one hand, and he's, like, queuing up a record with the other one. There's, you know, shenanigans going on in the background. And the whole thing just looks so sort of natural and easy. Um, I don't know, you really get a sense for, for how second nature this is for these guys. Just um, playing records is 
yeah, it just completely part of their you know being at this point. Holly, is there ever any acid house on the Tim Westwood show? <laughs> not this time round, unfortunately. I'm not sure if it was a show or just um, a mixtape, but um, yeah, I've been listening to Grime for like the first time ever this year, and one artist who I just can't get enough of is Skepta, and um, so. When Tim Westwood put an all Skepta mix together, I jumped right in. Cringing every time Westwood himself jumped in, of course. Oh, come oh, on. Oh, dear. He's dropping bombs. Oh, mate. There's something about the way he says motherfucker that oh. I just can't. I can't. Yeah. I was just about to do an impersonation, but I'm not going Oh, no. I'm definitely not going to do an impersonation. No, none of us. <clears throat> but yeah, so it's just pure and simple. I've been listening to a lot of Skepta and it's all in this mix. Um, there's a lot of new tracks which I think are coming out on this new album which hasn't landed yet this year. Konnichiwa, I think it's called. Without knowing a lot about Skepta, but he seems to have a really, he's had a really huge year. He went to the States for the first time and um, then Noisier kind of followed the, him and made a documentary. And um, my favourite track of of the year was uh, his shutdown record, which I think is just pff, it's an absolute summer summer shutdown. <laughs> um, and the and the thing that he did with it, where he kind of shut down a car park and filmed it, I said, pff, it was just great. That was pretty sick. Yeah, yeah. I think uh, the interview he did, the extended interview on Hot ninety seven, was like very deeply inspiring. I have my doubts that he'll be able to crack the American market despite his uh, flirtations with Drake and the kind of cool music that they've made together. But um, I hope it happens. You know, if he wants that, I hope it happens for him. Angus, you've gone for Leif on the Truancy series. Yeah, um, Leif is one of these weird, freakish phenomena of an artist who has been around for years and is still getting better. He has had an extraordinarily fertile year in spite of having made very nice house records for, I think, a decade or more. This mix, which is for the Truants blog, um, for me kind of captures that moment that he's had um, where he's kind of like still has one foot in this house world, which is very closely linked to the Free Rotation Festival, but also increasingly is in dialogue with this this kind of more hybrid UK music scene. So he, he released an EP on Idle Hands, the, the Bristol label, which was a kind of breakbeat, I guess, but felt very informed by UK dance music heritage, but also just released a fantastic album, Taraxicum, which is very much more a kind of a chilled out ambient house record. And both are really fantastic, like some of the best music he's made in his career. This mix kind of plots a course between those two worlds. It's got all kinds of odd things in it that I would never really have expected to hear mixed convincingly. Like there's an old Peche down-tempo tune, Sensate Focus, this kind of really angular Mark Fell project, one of Artwork's old grain tracks. They all work really well together um, and all with this kind of like really understated, kind of relaxed vibe that I think really connects everything that Leif does. I've gone for Soda Planes, uh, the mix he did for the Astral Plane. I think I should be honest and say that my pick is more for a kind of big up for the Astral Plane series than it is for this particular mix. I think the series as a whole does a 
fantastic job of, well, yeah, quite simply presenting fresh club sounds. But I think why I appreciate them is because with the kind of raft or endless stream of SoundCloud producers and people working in this style, they are definitely a very handy filtration for this for this scene and um, kind of putting some of these sounds in the context of a mix, which is probably the best delivery method for them. And yeah, I'd say I haven't heard as many of the mixes from the series I would have liked, but the Soda Plains one definitely stood out. He's a producer who's had a staggering one EP to his name so far. Uh, I think he's from Hong Kong originally, but is uh, based here in Berlin. Uh, so the one EP he put out was this in this kind of buoyant, uh, sort of flute-driven UK funky style. And it definitely um, definitely had its charms. And there was also a kind of killer all-originals mix he did for Dis last year. Uh, but this particular one, it was fairly brief, um, 30 minutes, which I kind of guess is part of the course with, with some of these producers. But the whole thing was driven by these really interesting kind of glassy FM-style melodies, sort of thing you would maybe hear on a One of Tricks Point Never album kind of got going with some really rugged kind of dembo and sort of like reggaeton style beats and then transitioned into um, some more kind of post night slugsy style stuff yeah lots of his own music in there it was a killer track by the naffy artist zut zut i think the most surprising inclusion was uh, the third track he played a sabers of paradise record uh, sort of like a mid-90s weatherall effort but yeah i appreciated this mix for its kind of bare bones aesthetic i think with artists working in this kind of post everything style there's definitely a temptation to throw too much at the wall kind of like we were talking about with amnesia scanner uh, managing to avoid this but <coughs> although where with amnesia scanner they were throwing a lot at the wall but a lot was sticking i think with the soda planes mix you know it's a case of refinement you know and just uh, stripping things back to very simple um you know positive forward thinking rhythmic ideas and pairing it with some you know interesting melodic content will you've gone for cool super it was on the blowing up the workshop series yeah his uh blowing up the workshop mix he had described it as i guess mining his production influences or drawing from his production influences which is you know you can you can tell from listening to the mix it's sort of like it kind of reminds me of um in high fidelity when he organizes his records autobiographically where like i don't know if joe would like agree with this or you know if this is necessarily true but it kind of feels like an autobiographical mix in a way where you know, it's like any given artist, any given person, I guess, sort of has a unique musical DNA or it's like this isn't just the music that they like. This is this sort of, you know, the, the underlying makeup of, of their sound. And, and um, th these are all the things that get sort of thrown into the blender. So when you listen to all these records that are actually quite disparate, but you can sort of see how all these things somehow result in um in, in Call Super's music in, in a way that's... um you know, it, it just sort of makes sense. Um, but then, uh, you know, beyond all that, though, it was just a really, really nice mix, kind of starting out with, like, dub and reggae, slowly upping the tempo through kind of strange house and techno. Also, I just have respect for any mix that's, like, successfully takes many different styles, you know, truly eclectic, and at the same time weaves them together just as nicely and just as smoothly as you would, you know, a straight house or techno mix. Like, the whole thing just unfurls uh, really elegantly. Yes, it's, it's just a really nice, kind of warm, um, yeah, chilled out mix.
albums, maybe I'll start this one. I've gone for Blank Mass's Dumb Flesh. Um, Blank Mass is uh, Benjamin John Power, one half of Fuck Buttons. I would say I'm not necessarily a Fuck Buttons fan per se. I have a lot of time and respect for what they do. I find their music very unique and powerful in places, but I also find it quite cloying, maybe, maybe a little OTT. But um, this was his second album that he'd uh, done as Blank Mass. The first one took a, a much different and uh, kind of interesting angle in that it seemed to kind of distill down some of the sort of more ambient textures from the fuck button sound, I guess the stuff that would be going on the background and, you know, really focusing on that. So it was a really, really pretty ambient, like very cinematic piece of music. The second one, he's just taken, you would say, the, the you know, the flamethrower aspects of their music and and really, really tuned them up. I think Tony in his uh, RA review described it as a, uh, a meteor, an apocalyptic aftershock, a towering wall of sound. I wouldn't go quite that far, but the drums and some of the synthesis just hit extremely hard. I think the way he did the drum tracks in particular, so he's working on this kind of like almost update on the on the motric kind of pattern. So everything's chugging along and the snares are on the two and the four, but there's this kind of really interesting churn going on underneath. So at once it feels conventional, but then wildly kind of experimental at the same time. I think there were some incredibly strong uh, melodic lines in the album. I think it was kind of arresting and catchy. I think the album overall was really well paced. Tracks interestingly arranged. And um, one thing I'm not going to be able to get into technical terms over, but it was kind of a really nice and I've got creamy written down here, but the mix down on it just made me think of... You could say creamy. Uh, Thanks. Thanks. Yeah, it's a creamy mix down. (laughs) Uh, But everything was was super spacious and um, it's definitely a busy record, but um, everything in the mix kind of had its moment, you know, and has it had its uh, space to breathe. So apparently the record was a comment on the flaws of the human form and its current evolutionary state. I didn't pick that up from music, but the artwork was definitely riffing on it, had these kind of kind of grotesque folds of skin. Um, it's definitely one of the more gross album covers of the year. I tend to just stare at the artwork while I'm listening to this, and that's kind of a satisfying experience overall. But yeah, he also recorded a really great podcast for us, which I guess was a kind of uh, haunting soundtrack thingy. And um, yeah, brought a lot of artists and composers to, to RA that we certainly wouldn't normally feature. Jordan, let's um, talk about Pearson Sound. Uh, I'm assuming this is something of a uh, rebuttal of the review we ran this year. Yeah, a little bit. I mean, if you would ask me sort of around the time in March when this album came out, if I would be talking about it on the year-end list as an album I really, really liked, I might have been a bit confused about that. But I I think that this is sort of a classic case of an underrated album. And it's an album that I think really grows on you over time. And that can be a really difficult thing in, I think, the way that we as critics are are kind kind of dealing with records. You know, sometimes the month or three weeks or six weeks or, you know, whatever you have to kind of take in a record isn't enough time to come up with as authoritative an opinion as we're supposed to offer. I think, though, that with this one in particular, just to kind of like lift the lift the lid off a little bit, the promo itself that we received was a pretty low quality MP3 with a little promo voice talking over some of the tracks or, you know, just little points in the tracks. 
I think that kind of creates like a little bit of a hostile environment for taking in what's extremely subtle music. I mean, this is an album that's as much about production and sound design as I think any remotely dance floor record that was released this year, you know, could have been. And the first time that I really had a moment with it, or I guess a moment where I really liked this record was when I was at a friend's house and he had just come back from the record store with the vinyl. I was like, oh, interesting. He's like, yeah, I I hadn't heard this yet, but I listened to it at the shop. It sounded amazing. And he put it on and we listened to it. And I was like, wow, this actually does sound incredible. There's a lot more detail here than I picked up on when I was listening through to the promo. I, I was really, really into it. And then a couple of weeks later uh, at a record store, I picked up the the two 12 inches that they released, which basically featured some of the more dance floor oriented cuts in extended mixes, cut at 45. And they also sounded great. You know, just some of some of my favorite Pearson sound tracks from the last little while. I think that when you have a very challenging album, you, you kind of need to get over the hurdle and, this is a record where you could really hear David challenging himself as a producer, and thus we're going to be challenged as well as listeners. This is definitely one where your opinion is going to going to evolve on this record. Now I, I listen to it a lot. I love it. Um, Holly, tell us about Max Richter. He is a German-born British composer. He's made uh, a ton of albums, um, kind of quite conceptual um classical compositions he's kind of done various soundtracks and um, one of my favorite films of all time which is waltz waltz of Bashir. and he's also done some collaborations with ronnie size in the past so he's got this really interesting range of musical interests which includes a lot of electronic music this year he's kind of taken on probably one of the biggest projects of his entire career and that's um an eight hour long album called sleep and unlike what it's sort of been written about in the press this isn't he hasn't made this as a sleep aid it's not about putting you to sleep he's written an album which kind of takes the concept of sleep and he's written a composition about that so he's kind of consulted um with american neuroscientist David Eagleman, just to make sure that kind of his thoughts about sleep were on point with the kind of the science of it all. And I have to admit, I've not listened to all of it, but I don't think I'm alone there. I don't think even Max himself, he admits that he still hasn't really kind of taken it all in yet. It's just, it's such a huge piece of music. Uh, It's one of those things that you can't really listen to it properly. It's you can't listen to it in the traditional sense of listening to an album. It's it kind of changes the way that you uh, approach it, and I think that's really a fascinating thing that I still haven't really got my head around. How did the music relate to sleep for you? Well, he actually um, performed it live on radio. uh, The whole eight-hour broadcast. Um, He actually broke a Guinness Book of Records with that. Actually, this whole thing has, uh, it's got two Guinness Book of Records now. It's the uh, the longest broadcast of a single piece of music and the longest live broadcast of a single piece of music. So um, I tried to tune in and instead it actually had a reverse effect. I kind of, I found myself really waking up and trying to follow it. So I'm not sure it's, it's definitely not a sleep aid for me, let's say. But yeah, I think it's a really, it's, the whole concept's really fantastic and 
as soon as I've got eight hours spare, I'm going to give it a proper listen. <laughs> That's now how that goes. <laughs> Angus, tell us about your uh, favourite record of 2015. Well, my pick is, is the Björk album. I mean, it's not the record I've listened to the most this year. I mean, I kind of think of it like, you know, that extremely good, extremely heavy art house film that you've got on your shelf that every time you think about watching a film, you're like, oh, I know that's good, but I'm just going to feel awful after watching it. So like... Everybody's got one of those. Yeah, you know, you love it, but you've, you've seen it like twice and that's kind of enough. Um, that's kind of my feeling with this album. I mean, musically, it is Björk's best album in quite a long time. Whether, I mean, she's kind of achieved that by, in a sense, going back to a style that she was exploring in the 90s. I mean, it sounds a lot in terms of its materials, these kind of strings, these electronic beats. It sounds a lot like um, Homogenic from 1997. So... Maybe there's something of concern there for Björk fans that for the first time she's kind of looking back rather than innovating. But I guess I chose it just kind of out of respect to um, my experience the first time I listened to it, which is that I downloaded it when it came out and hadn't really read anything about it, didn't know anything about it, and kind of sat with the lyrics booklet open on my computer and just listened through. And um, it's essentially like a a diary about the breakdown of her marriage to the artist Matthew Barney and uh, it's just a real gut punch actually um, certainly it was for me you know I came, came out of it feeling like I'd really been through the ringer having listened to this thing and it's really rare to have an album in this kind of confessional autobiographical mode which really conveys so effectively the kind of emotional states especially you, for someone that high profile absolutely yeah yeah I mean it would be very easy for her to and I think that's what she's done in her last couple of albums is to kind of in a sense hide behind big ideas um, these kind of flashy multidisciplinary projects which are impressive on paper but um, lacked the kind of emotional directness of this well this comes up a little bit in the the interview the Jessica Hopper interview in Pitchfork where I think Bjork herself even says, like, my last album was about the universe. Like, it really couldn't have been less personal. Yeah, and I, I wonder if, you know, a bit of armchair psychotherapy would be that this was kind of, because a lot of the events that are covered in this album were sort of unfolding when the last album was being made, as I understand it. So whether it was, you know, for her, it was like not actually wanting to address this, not being ready to address this yet. I mean, it's interesting that, you know, we're talking about this as um, her reverting back to something in a simpler time. Yep, one of the uh, key contributors, key producers on the album was um, Arca, who I guess we would say is among the more innovative pop producers out there at the moment. What I find interesting about Arca's contribution, though, is that, I mean, I didn't come out of it thinking about Arca's contribution very much no, at all. No, there weren't same. many p places in the album where I thought, oh, wow, like Arca, you know. It was very much Björk's vision. He supplied parts of the electronic side of things. So the live strings, which, which Björk arranged, composed and arranged uh, one element, and the other element is these kind of glitchy drums. He did a lot of that work, but I get the sense that it was very much following her blueprint. And obviously he's extremely good at doing that, and the results are very impressive, but it didn't feel like he was having a really sort of invigorating effect on, on the music. We're returning to Leif, Will. Yeah, Angus already stepped on my bit, but um, <clears throat> to reiterate some of what Angus said, um, Leif's an artist who I feel has just been good for a long time, but has recently really arrived at a very distinct 
voice, I guess you could call it. Basically, he has a style that doesn't go against the grain in any kind of dramatic way, or it's it's not like, you know, it d- doesn't feel decidedly unconventional, or it's not like he's trying to tear up the rule book or anything like that. But at the same time, it is um, entirely his. And um, I guess, you know, sort of on a fundamental level, it's he uh, rarely goes for a straight 4-4 four, four beat anymore. There's always a kind of, like Angus said, the um, um, life through analogies kind of had a breakbeat vibe, but that's very much like, you know, for lack of a better term, it's one of these things that sort of very organically exists between uh, genres in, in a way that's sort of just feels very natural. It's like this is um, just, you know, him expressing himself in a very simple and direct way. Also, something that I like about him is it's the same thing I like about Giegling and um, a number of other number of other artists I've liked over the years, including like certain Perlone records, some Ricardo Villalobos stuff is um, I think it's kind of like it's beautiful music in the sense that, you know, um, I guess like beauty as a quality is something that is obviously a big part of other art forms like painting, poetry, cinema, but often, you know, it's comparatively minor role in dance music, but it's kind of, that's always my favorite stuff where it's just kind of, I don't know, just the, the textures and the colors of it are just, you know, really, really lovely. It's just, it's just really, really um, nice to sort of, you know, kind of let it wash over you. But yeah, I think his his EP on Idle Hands felt like kind of like a, I don't know, for me that was by far the most impressive I've ever been by anything he's done. And then this album seems like, you know, he's sort of cinching the deal further. Each track is just, I don't know, a very novel, but at the same time kind of like humble and understated thing. The, the whole thing is just, um, you can listen to it over and over again. How long has he been making music for? I had a look at his discogs this morning. I think his first single is maybe 2003 or 2004. Um, so it's a long old time. Okay. And early stuff being more conventional kind of house records? Kind of like micro housey or, or something. But yeah, it's also worth noting that like his DJ style, especially the last couple of times I've seen him, everything Angus Nipple said also applies to the way he DJs. And in general, I just, I really like these artists that sort of, you know, mine these nether regions between established styles. Um, it's, it's actually the same thing that I liked when I first sort of answer code requests. I sort of thought something similar about him where it's like you could say he's sort of riffing on breakbeat or something, but it's kind of just his thing. He just managed to home in on something that in sort of a subtle way is, is totally singular. Yeah, and Leif, Leif does the same thing. Right, so for the final section, we're going to uh, each pick an RA podcast uh, from this year because uh, these don't appear in any of the polls and, yeah, we want to large up ourselves. So, Jordan and Angus, you've actually gone for the same mix. Wow. <laughs> well, it was a good mix. Clearly. We chose the Bjorn Turska mix. Maybe we should do a word each. going <laughs> <laughs> to go back to back. Yeah. <laughs> um, we were talking a little bit about this before we came into the studio. I, I liked it because it was a mix that was not necessarily a dance floor mix. And I think there's a lot you can do as a DJ when you're not just 
trying to make people dance in this kind of like boom, 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 boom kind of way. This mix was so like kind of theatrical and fun. There were a lot of really nice twists and and turns, but it was just, you know, when I put something on, I don't necessarily want to just hear techno. Sometimes it's it's nice to hear this kind of wider-ranging musical vision, and that was definitely what Bjorn Torska did. Uh, you mentioned theatrical. S- something that really stood out about it for me is that there's this particular kind of camp or kitsch quality to this this camp of Norwegian artists, which you hear in the younger generation, specifically Lindstrom and Todd Terje, which um, this mix definitely has, and Bjorn Torsk was definitely like a... Um, a big influence on those artists and that kind of really appealed to me about it I mean for me like the way I usually consume the RA podcast is kind of sat at my desk like trying to scale a mountain of emails and um, this podcast brought the most joy to that process every time it came on I just felt inexplicably happy um, so that's that, why I chose um, it. I was going to say that We Are The Children track. It does it for me every time. <laughs> Sorry, Jordan, were you going to say? I was just going to ask if there were more exclamation marks in your emails when you were writing those things. I think more smiley faces probably. <laughs> nice. Holly, you've picked Visionist. Um, joyful? Compared to the album, yeah. <laughs> but that's sort of the point here. I mean, I'm a big Visionist fan and I was really excited to hear this album and then I put it on and it was actually really quite terrifying and really difficult to listen to but also probably one of the most important records of this year. So for me his podcast was a nice transition kind of bringing it down to something that's a bit more digestible because there were some safe threads in there and fleshed out with something which is a lot more familiar territory because I think with the album he just went right off into this whole other new strange scary world and I still don't really understand it and I don't think a lot of people do either but I'd seen the line that it was um supposedly tracking the like development of a panic attack Mm, yeah or an anxiety yeah I don't know how true that is yes I mean that was the sort of the general concept of the album and it definitely has that kind of emotional journey let's say but I think just the kind of the music itself is just the way he's done it it's quite mind-blowing so the podcast kind of made it all a bit easier to understand I think musically and I've just a great mix so Will you've actually uh, cheated slightly Uh, you've picked a mix that we're releasing early next year tell us about that one it's by Porn Sword Tobacco I guess what I like about it is it's always a nice surprise when I never seen him DJ, I never heard any of his mixes, and what he delivered was quite markedly different from his records. I really like his records, it's sort of like understated, spacey, slightly emotional techno. But um, yeah, the mix is just this strange sort of... Well, okay, I guess one way of putting it is he obviously has a very special record collection. Um, he knows about a lot of strange records that I don't know, you know, from disco to sort of balearic Tropicalia stuff. And he gives you this very kind of psychedelic tour of his, you know, unusual record collection. Um, it's hard to know if for at many points, you know, you don't really know if you're hearing a new record or an old record, maybe some kind of like private edit he did. I didn't recognize any of the tracks, but there are a few times where I recognized a track that was 
sampled. Um, for instance, there's one tune that has this sort of strange, haunting tribal chants from um, African Rhythms by Bookworms. And on top of all that, I don't know exactly what the deal is with this, but the entire thing seems to have a particular sheen to it. It's as if, you know, he there, there was a certain quality to, I don't know if he recorded it to tape or there was, you know, a certain quality to his mixer, but all these records are sort of put through a certain filter that, um, I don't know, it gives it this, this nice unified kind of amberish glow. Yeah, really nice mix. Yeah, strange, because I could say uh, exactly the same thing about my selection, which was the Suzanne Craft podcast that we put out at the start of the year. I think it probably had to do with the fact that there was lots of his own music in there, but everything had this kind of coherent, very hazy, very humid feel. I think what drew me to this mix, I think 2015 has been the year that I kind of rediscovered electro, but was like very, very much listening to a lot of the kind of classic electro records I was listening to maybe 10 years ago. And um, although this wasn't working on a classic blueprint, it was like quite considerably slower and, um, you know, the sound palette was quite different. It did feel very much rooted in that style, kind of modern, very glitchy, but, you know, working on that kind of syncopated rhythm. I liked that this mix felt a kind of live in a way. It felt like the whole thing was performed in a certain way. There was lots of tracks that were very evidently like hardware derived. They were definitely written on hardware, but instead of kind of resorting to, um, you know, one of the dominant trends over the last couple of years, which is leaning on these sort of lo-fi aesthetics, if you like, and caking everything in, and kind of reverb and distortion and stuff. There were just some very clear kind of musical ideas running through all these tracks. I absolutely loved the uh, goofy intro and uh, the drop call thing that he did throughout the mix. It just sounded like him dicking around basically, but at I think three or four different occasions in the mix, this thing popped up and kind of reset the tempo and the energy. And then he kind of went again. It's pretty rare actually that we um, have a mix that doesn't run on some form of linearity you know the idea of stopping and starting again over the course of 60 minutes I think is quite rare yeah and overall I think mix had tons of personality and kind of connected up as well with uh, there were tracks by or on rather the uh, Future Times label Mood Heart Public Possession and um, you know this mix and um, I think Susan Craft as an artist in general definitely feels of a piece with those labels you can definitely see like shared aesthetics kind of <coughs> shared attitudes to to the process and yeah I think I was going to say it capped it came right at the start of the year but I think it was a really really great year for him as an artist Talk From Home was possibly my favourite electronic record of the year um, you know something that was connected to this mix but was kind of on a just a lovely home listening tip so yeah been extremely impressed with him this year That's it for our year in review. Big thanks to all the participants. We'll be back in January with more exchanges. In the meantime, you can find our full archive of exchanges on residentadvisor.net and on SoundCloud at RA-Exchange. 